Today I'm going to continue going through some of the early reports, articles taken from the local newspapers in the first few years following Johnny Gosh's disappearance. Since I released part one last week, some listeners have been reaching out to me asking, what exactly is the focus on Sam Soda? Well, one of the articles that I'm going to share with you today may leave you sort of scratching your head at Sam Soda again, kind of in the same vein as how he set up the organization Stolen Children Are Reported Every Day, which abruptly closed up shop just a little more than a year after it was created. And during its existence, he was able to obtain and share images of real child pornography, and also how he claimed to have been awarded two Purple Hearts, though that never happened. When you put all these news articles together, for me at least, I get this sense of there's a missing piece of information here. Something that should be simple and in plain sight. Like somebody knows something, but they're just not saying it. Because also, as I mentioned at the end of my last episode, there's another man that I'd like to bring up today by the name of Fred. You first heard his name mentioned by Chris Burge when I spoke to him at length in episode 16. Well, almost immediately after I released that episode, I got an email from Yellowbag giving me Fred's full name and some newspaper articles regarding him. Fred died in 1994. And his story is a pretty wild one in and of itself. But you're going to find out he was very much a predator, and he was living and working in the Des Moines area at the same time of Johnny's disappearance. So I think with the articles that I'm going to read to you today, we'll be able to pull back yet another layer and get a slightly better look on who were these mysterious guys living in Des Moines at the time. This is episode 19 of Faded Out. I'm Sarah Dimio. hard to think about Johnny Gosh and not think about Eugene Martin. The cases have never officially been linked, but they're just too similar. Both living in the Des Moines area, Eugene Martin in Des Moines and Johnny in West Des Moines, both paperboys for the Des Moines Register, both alleged to have been talking to strange men the morning of their disappearance, and both disappeared without a trace on a Sunday morning. So the first article I'm going to read to you involves Sam Soda and Eugene Martin's father, Don Martin. This is from the Des Moines Register, and it's dated October 18th, 1984, a little over two months after Eugene disappeared. The writer is Frank Santiago, who I've noticed has written many articles on Soda from the early 80s into the 90s. The headline reads, Martin cites Tiff with investigator. Don Martin said he was angered Wednesday when private investigator Sam Soda of Des Moines declined to discuss a possible lead on his missing son because Martin claims Soda wasn't being paid for the information. I personally don't like it, said Martin. He tells me nothing unless I hire him. 
That was Martin's interpretation of a telephone conversation he had with Soda, whom Martin had called after learning that someone from Sheridan recently saw a boy who looked like the missing newspaper carrier, Eugene Martin. But Soda said later he didn't discuss the lead with Martin, quote, because I didn't have it checked out. Until the information is correct, I don't want anybody going around shouting about it. Then I make a fool of myself. End quote. Martin said John Gosh of West Des Moines, father of missing carrier Johnny Gosh, who vanished more than two years ago, called him early Wednesday and told him Soda had information about the Sheridan incident. Then Martin said he called Soda. A tape Martin said he made of the conversation follows. Martin, this is Don. I got a call from John. What's this all about, this person from Sheridan? Soda, well, I'm not working for you guys, Don, you know? I've heard it through the grapevine. Martin, well, if that's the way you feel about it, why did you have John call me? Soda, I didn't care if John called or not. We were just talking. I've been doing a lot of work. I don't like the things I've heard. You guys haven't hired me. You haven't offered to pay any expenses. I had a news conference the other day. I've done an awful lot. I haven't asked for anything. Nobody has been to my office to consider talking to me. The Sheridan lead wasn't related to Johnny Gosh. I'd like to work for you guys. I've got a reputation to contend with. I think I've treated the Martins right. I don't keep coming knocking at your door telling you I'm doing this and I'm doing that. Martin, I'm not going to sit here and argue with you. Soda, I'm not arguing with you. Martin, if you don't want to tell me what you know, that's up to you. Soda, I will tell the authorities. Martin, Fine then, call them and tell them. I don't want John calling me at 12 o'clock at night and tell me a bunch of stuff and tell me to call you and when I call, you give me a runaround. Soda, I tell the authorities everything I've ever come up with. You ask them, they tell you. In an interview later Wednesday, Soda said he was investigating the lead and wasn't prepared to turn over the information. He said that he has been working on the disappearances of the two 14-year-old youngsters for months, mostly at his own expense, and that Noreen and John Gosh had paid some of his expense. Martin said he has had no agreement with Soda and has never paid him. Soda, who has recently emerged as an anti-smut campaigner and head of an organization called Stolen Children Are Reported Every Day, said... I feel obligated. I've had numerous meetings with numerous people, big people, out-of-state people. They know what's going on. There are kids being stolen all across our country. Two weeks after Eugene Martin disappeared, August 12th, while delivering the Des Moines Sunday Register, Soda met Martin and his wife Sue in a self-service laundry, said Martin. He told us he knew where the boys were. He said organized crime was involved and that he needed a lot of backing from high officials to find them. He kept telling us he didn't want any payment, and I told him if he knew where the kids were to go for it. Soda said he recalled the meeting, but not the details of the conversation. Noreen Gosh said her husband telephoned Martin, quote, because we wanted to share the information with him. Saying that she had paid some of Soda's expenses, Gosh said the private investigator had made some things click for her and her husband. And quote, he has been worth a great deal to us, end quote. Meanwhile, Tom Ruxlow, chief of the Iowa Division of Criminal Investigation, said agents were checking a report that Soda illegally presented himself as a DCI agent when he interviewed a Des Moines Register adult carrier Soda suspected of fondling some young teenage carriers. The adult carrier has since been fired from the paper. Okay, there's a lot to unpack here. I want to start with Soda's tone towards Don Martin during this allegedly taped back and forth that they had. When Don Martin first asks about this lead from Sheridan, Soda's first response is simply, well, I'm not working for you guys. 
And when Don mentions the phone call from John Gosh, Soda replies with, I didn't care if John called you guys or not. We were just talking. I've been doing a lot of work. I don't like the things I've heard. You guys haven't hired me. You haven't offered to pay any expenses. He goes on to say, I think I've treated the Martins right. I don't keep coming knocking at your door telling you that I'm doing this or I'm doing that. So then he tells Don that everything he finds he gives to authorities. So Don should go to the authorities and they'll tell him everything. And then in the next sentence, it says that Soda was still investigating and wasn't prepared to go to the authorities yet. The thing is, you don't talk to a grieving parent like that. I am aware that being a private investigator is a business. You don't give out services for free. But that's not what Don Martin was asking for. He was asking Sam Soda for a piece of information that he was told he already had. And if Soda was just waiting for a payment from the Martins before he shared that piece of information, well, at that point, he's not really requiring payment for a service. At that point, he's more so ransoming that piece of information. And if this conversation between these two men did happen just as it's printed, why did Soda tell Don that he shares everything with authorities and that they would tell him everything? That part I really don't get because it makes me wonder if this lead out of Sheridan ever even existed. Or maybe it did exist and Soda was still trying to hold out so the Martins would hire him. It just seems to me that there's a lot of baiting with bits of information. It speaks to something I've touched on before in recent episodes. Private investigators who keep a story going, keep families and the public hanging on, but never enough to lead to anything substantial that could implicate someone. That way the story keeps going, and they keep getting paid. And then that leads me to another thing. By most accounts, the Goshes lived pretty comfortably money-wise. So they had the resources to hire private investigators. And keep in mind, it was Sam Soda who approached the Goshes, not the other way around. It seems to me that with the Martins, they didn't have those same kind of resources. So when Don Martin calls Soda, he's sort of met with a tone of, why are you even speaking to me? The same opportunity to get paid wasn't there. And I want you to remember something that I brought up in my last episode regarding how Soda did a taped two-hour interview with Frank Sikora. I suggested that maybe Soda shook Frank Sikora down. And that's why the last paragraph of this article jumps out at me. It says that agents were checking a report that Soda illegally presented himself as a DCI agent when he interviewed a Des Moines Register adult carrier that Soda suspected of fondling some teenage carriers. So if that is the case, that means that Soda was knowingly being dishonest when interviewing Sakura, the register employee the article refers to. This is a tactic that police interrogators have used for years, but it's always met with criticism because it's been known to lead suspects into false confessions. A great example of this is a docu-series that you can find on Netflix. It's called The Confession Tapes. In the very first episode, it tells the story of a gruesome triple murder, a couple and their daughter. Long story short, the two young men arrested for the crime are the couple's son and his friend, who had an alibi at the time, and they were the ones to come home and discover the crime scene and call the police. But the way that a confession was extracted out of them was by using a tactic that was legal in Canada, where they were from, but it's actually illegal in the U.S., where undercover cops pose as mobsters, and they approach the boys, have them come to secret meetings in hotel rooms, scare them into thinking that they have no way out of this, that no one will ever believe their claim of innocence. Anytime they say they don't know what happened that night or they stand by their innocence, the mobsters, quote unquote, become frustrated and they say something to the effect of, you know that's not true. 
and they keep this tactic going on for hours until they finally tell them the story that they want to hear. You can't even really call it coercion. What it is is manipulation. It appears to me that those were the types of tactics that Sam Soda used with his private investigating. I'm not saying that Frank Sikora was completely innocent. That's not necessarily what I think. I'm just saying I think questionable tactics were used when he was being interviewed, and it shifted attention away from the more dangerous people who were hiding in plain sight. And that brings me to this guy, Fred. I want to replay for you a piece of what Chris Burge told me about this guy, based on his memories of being a 10-year-old kid in West Des Moines when he would see Fred at the mall. And then I told you about Fred at the at Valley West Mall. Yeah. I would I would go up to Valley West Mall on my bike, and you know, that's what everybody did. There was the arcade, the fun factory up at Valley West Mall, and right around the corner, my friends were like, hey, this guy gives us money go see movies. It's like, let's go see E.T., so we went over and the guy gave us money. Like, wow, that was great. Then he, you know, he did it like a couple more times. And then he was like, hey, why don't you come over? He had these kids that lived with him. They were like 13 or 14. And yeah. he's like, why don't you come over and hang out? We'll play games. Then one time he called my house. And my mom was like, and I was like, tell him I'm not here. No, she was like, who was that? And I was like, I, didn't, I don't ever want to talk to that guy. And so I kind of stopped going up to the mall. And then my friend who introduced me said that, I, this was later, I went back to the mall and I saw the piano store had closed. And he, my friend said that his mom had got concerned, I don't know if it was her directly, but he had got arrested for some kind of pedophilia ring thing or something. So okay. I called the West Des Moines police and asked them about it. And they said, unless you have a case number, they can't find anything back that far. So as I mentioned in the beginning, the day after I released episode 16, I got an email from Yellowbag. He says the Fred that Chris mentions is Fred Sayer. He was a pedophile who taught piano lessons at Valley West Mall in West Des Moines. Yellowbag had read about Fred while researching sex abuse arrests in the 1980s, and he attached a newspaper article that I'd like to share with you now. This is from the Des Moines Register, and it's dated June 16, 1983. This is by staff writer Melinda Voss, and the headline reads, Sobbing Piano Teacher Pleads Guilty of Sex Abuse of Students. In a last-minute plea bargaining agreement, Fred Freeland Sayer pleaded guilty Wednesday of sexually abusing children to whom he had offered free piano lessons. Sobbing at times and twitching nervously, the 29-year-old Des Moines man said he was pleading guilty to the reduced charges because, quote, I think everybody involved has been heard enough. It's not what I want to do, it's what I feel I have to do. Standing before Polk County District Judge Gene L. Needles, Sayer pleaded guilty of third-degree sexual abuse even after the judge said Said he would impose two consecutive 10-year sentences rather than allow the usual practice of running the sentences concurrently. Needles set sentencing for August 2nd. Sayer originally was charged with six counts of second-degree sexual abuse and two counts of indecent contact with a child. Later, the charges were consolidated. His trial was scheduled to start Wednesday on two counts of second-degree sexual abuse and one count of indecent contact with a child. Second-degree sexual abuse carries a maximum prison sentence of 25 years. The penalty for indecent contact with a child is up to a year in jail. Needle said he will dismiss the charge of indecent contact when Sayer is sentenced. Answering a series of questions from Needles, Sayer admitted that he fondled the genitals and performed oral sex on two boys, a six-year-old and a ten-year-old. He denied that he was guilty of the indecent contact charge. Responding to the charges, Sayer said he cared, quote, 
very, very deeply for both those boys. The article includes a picture of Fred Sayer, and when I showed this to Chris Burge, he confirmed, yes, that is the Fred that he was talking about. After that, he said to me, I am putting my money on Fred. And Chris then emailed me more newspaper clippings that he found regarding Fred. Here's one from the Des Moines Register dated August 11th, 1991, written by staff writer William Petrosky. The headline reads, Sex Offenders Prison Release Worries Police. Fred Sayer plans to return to West Des Moines early next year, and state officials are already getting worried. Sayer, 37, has been behind bars the past eight years after pleading guilty of sexually abusing boys in the Des Moines area. Authorities say he was a Pied Piper who would win the friendship of boys with gifts such as soda pop and money for video games, and then coax them into fondling or oral sex acts. At Valley West Mall in West Des Moines, where Sayer was a piano salesman, he offered three boys free music lessons then sexually abused them, the boys told police. Sayre was sent to prison for 20 years in 1983, but his sentence has been reduced under Iowa law because of his good conduct and prison work, plus credit for time he spent in jail awaiting trial. That means he is due for release from the Iowa State Penitentiary in Fort Madison on February 10th, regardless of whether he is ready for freedom. I just want to skip down a few paragraphs. It goes on to read, Sayer said in recent interviews he believes he will be no threat to society when he is freed. However, he expressed deep bitterness over his years behind bars and no remorse for his crimes. Hell will freeze over when I say I am sorry, he said. I have not been shown one bit of mercy. How am I supposed to act when I get out? His life in prison has been a nightmare, he said. He feels there has been no opportunity for rehabilitation because of hostility shown towards him by other inmates and prison guards because of his crime. The article goes on after that, but I think you get the idea. Fred was bitter. And though he said he didn't think he would be any threat to society, in the same breath he says, hell will freeze over when I say I am sorry. How am I supposed to act when I get out? So I want to read you another article that Chris sent to me from the Des Moines Register, dated November 5th, 1993, just a little less than two years after Fred was released. I won't read the entire thing, but I will give you the first few paragraphs. And this is again by staff writer William Petrosky, and the headline reads, Notorious Molester is Again Charged. Fred Sayer, one of Iowa's most notorious child molesters, was arrested in Missouri this week on felony charges of sodomy and child abuse, authorities said Thursday. Sayer, 39, was discharged from the Iowa State Penitentiary early last year after spending nine years behind bars for sexually abusing boys in the Des Moines area. Iowa authorities said he had a history of being a Pied Piper who would win the friendship of boys with gifts such as soda pop and money for video games and then coax them into fondling or oral sex acts. In the early 1980s, Sayer worked as a piano salesman at Valley West Mall in West Des Moines. Investigators said he offered young boys music lessons, then sexually abused them. Adair County, Missouri Sheriff Randy Farquhar said that Sayer was arrested Wednesday night and was charged with six counts of sodomy and two counts of sexual abuse. He was being held in the county jail there on $100,000 bond. So, in another one of my emails with Yellow Bag, he mentioned to me how Chris had said that he wondered whatever became of Fred. 
Well, Yellowbag found a partial newspaper article. Fred was found in a car with a bullet in his head in February 1994. He had made the mistake of moving to a small town in Missouri after his release from prison in Iowa. Yellowbag explains to me that locals put out flyers about a sex offender in their midst, and two victims from that town came forward. Local people insisted Fred committed suicide, even though no weapon was ever found in his car. So when I brought this up to Chris, Chris found another link. It was a link to another partial article, and this one was from the St. Louis Post-Dispatch, dated February 4th, 1994, written by Virginia Young of the Post-Dispatch Jefferson City Bureau, and the headline reads, Woman Shot Boyfriend. Police charge note suggests he sought death after accusations. A woman from northeastern Missouri was charged Thursday with killing the man who allegedly abused her two sons. But authorities say the shooting wasn't motivated by vengeance. Authorities say that the woman, Marilyn McVeigh, 42, was in love with the victim, Fred Freeland Sayer of Martinstown, and shot him at his request. She just helped him pass on, said Putnam County Sheriff Melvin Roof. Fred said he would never return to prison, and I think he talked her into helping him commit suicide. McVeigh was charged with second-degree murder and armed criminal action. She was in the Putnam County Jail Thursday. The judge set her bond at $100,000 and scheduled a preliminary hearing for March 1st. Putnam County is on the Iowa state line, about 250 miles from St. Louis. Officials said the charges against McVeigh should change, depending on the results of laboratory tests. For example, tests on residue from Sayers and McVeigh's hands could show who fired the 20-gauge shotgun, believed to be the murder weapon. Sayer, 40, served nine years in a prison in Iowa for sexually abusing several boys in the Des Moines area. Last November, he was charged with sexually abusing McVeigh's sons, ages 5 and 12. So that's the story of Fred Sayer. My questions regarding Fred would be, did Fred and Wilbur Milhouse run in the same circles? Did Sam Soda know anything about Fred Sayer? And if so, why did he never question him? Did Johnny ever have contact with Fred? It would be likely if Johnny hung out at the mall. Chris did, and he remembers Fred clearly. It just seems very odd to me that at a time when people are just now beginning to learn the word pedophile, and it's becoming very prevalent in the Johnny Gosh case, and here you have a guy arrested for sexually abusing boys, and he's in West Des Moines, and his name is blasted all over the papers, and yet as far as Johnny's case goes, his name has never once been mentioned. So I'd like to learn more about Fred. Who were his adult friends at the time? So that's where I will leave you today, and for my next episode, I'm planning to speak to someone much closer to the Johnny Gosh case, a friend of John and Noreen who's been active in the search for Johnny since the very beginning. I'm looking forward to hearing his thoughts on the new information we've uncovered in the recent episodes and if he thinks that there's anywhere that we can go from here. Until then, you can get in touch with me by email at fadedoutpodcast at gmail.com. I want to also direct you to Faded Out on Patreon. I want to keep this podcast going for as long as possible. And if we are successful in solving Johnny's case, I would like to go on and investigate more missing persons cold cases. I want to travel to the areas where these events happened, get on the ground and talk to people. So please visit patreon.com slash faded out podcast and consider donating. Patreon is spelled P-A-T-R-E-O-N. 
It's a tiered system where you can get rewards back based on how much you give monthly. Faded Out is also on Facebook at facebook.com slash fadedoutpodcast. And there is a closed group that you can request to join called Followers of Faded Out. As always, Faded Out is recorded at the Connecticut School of Broadcasting in Farmington, Connecticut. Thank you for joining me for episode 19. I'm Sarah Dimio. See you next time.